The relationship between rock band and record label has always been a very tricky tightrope to walk. We all know stories told from both sides of the fence. Some resemble horror stories, others sound like winning a gold ticket or rubbing a magical lamp. Whatever the case, both parties are dependent on each other. And for me, as a music fan, there have been times I've placed blind faith in one or the other to lead me to where the good music is. Of course, when you cross the line and assume one of the two sides, in my case, that's the band side, you quickly realize just how hazardous it can be on the front lines. We've had our ups and downs with labels in the past, but to be fair, we've also had our tussles with the egomaniacal dispositions adopted by some bands out there too. So, all in all, I've stayed in the game, stayed the course, and come out still a big booster of bands and labels alike loyally checking out releases, making note of which label puts out what band, and keeping my music fandom intact, despite what I've been witness to behind closed doors. One label I've always kept a watchful eye on and been loyal to to one degree or another is Metal Blade Records. In the high-turnover, short-term, transitory world that is the music biz, not to mention the greatly lowered stakes upon its entrance into the digital age, it is quite commendable that Metal Blade, in its 32 years of putting out heavy music, which for all intents and purposes remains a niche market, is still on an upward trajectory. Where other labels and bands get stuck associated with a certain sound or era, ultimately denoting them as passé, Metal Blade, like a ninja, has managed to successfully continue regardless of fleeting trends that come and go in or out of the scene. From the outside, Metal Blade may appear to be an easy template to replicate, but one must recognize the vital enthusiasm of its founder, Brian Slagle, to be the essential component for the label's success. Brian has carved a career out of turning people onto bands, whether they're on his label or not, as I experienced firsthand. After this episode was taped, I found myself going down an Iron Maiden rabbit hole I had not journeyed down in quite some time and it was only due to listening to Brian talk about them in the short period of time we talked. Seems he has that innate ability of turning people onto bands in a way I don't see in too many people in the music biz anymore. Of course, this talent has to be put to good use, and it has over decades, introducing the world to bands like Armored Saint, Rat, Fate's Warning, Sirithungal, Hyrax, Trouble, Voivod, Corrosion of Conformity, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Atheist, Sacred Reich, Sacrifice, and of course, Metallica and Slayer. The Metal Blade Registry puts pretty much all metal labels to shame, and when you look at the breadth and the monumental role some of its bands have played in the history of the genre, Metal Blade could arguably be called the greatest metal label in history. The bands I just listed have played such a significant role in shaping my musical taste and my personal experience with popular music, period. To be able to meet and talk to the man behind all of this was a distinct pleasure. Even today, Metal Blade exerts such a great influence on the scene through its current roster like Behemoth, Amon Amarth, Portrait, Below, Goat Whore, Whitechapel, co-releasing bands with Rise Above Records like Uncle Acid and the Deadbeats, Church of Misery, and Ghost, and most recently, comedians like Don Jameson, Jim Florentine, and of course, Richard Christie's Charred Walls of the Damned. The list is long, 
thorough, and impressive. Brian and I had gone back and forth about meeting up to record this episode for over a year. Recently, the CMW, the Canadian Music Week Conference, gave us the opportunity when he was booked to talk on a panel. And despite us being in pre-production for our next record, I scrambled to make this happen. Early evening mix-ups from my end only made me more determined to make it happen, so glad it did. I want to thank, a very special thanks, to Phil from Sacred Reich and Don Jameson for helping me prep for this podcast. So thank you very much, guys. It was very helpful. As you'll hear, their help came in handy bringing focus to this podcast with a guy whose shadow is cast over dozens and dozens of bands spanning three decades. It's also pretty cool that both have put out records on Brian's label. Thanks to Skull Candy Headphones and Blue Mic Microphones for supporting the podcast. Thanks to Brian for doing this, and thanks to you for tuning in. We were recently able to pass the quarter million mark, and we're now gunning for half a million listens. So, thank you. Here it is. Brian Slagle is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. Nick Lennon, is Danko's co host Hello for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes. Jimmy in from Fucked Up. Stop Brian Hanks out. They told him he was too crazy to rock and roll. But now, he's going to talk their ears off. Danko's got a podcast, and he won't shut up. It's the one and only, your boy, Danko Jones. I am in Brian Slagle's hotel suite, <laughs> Diamond Hotel Suite. This is pretty plush. Ridiculous. Um, for the Canadian Music Week, uh, Brian uh, flew into Toronto, and I've been monitoring you on Twitter and your whereabouts, and anytime I get any inkling that you're anywhere near Toronto, <laughs> I throw it out to you. If you if you can ever in the vicinity, please, we got to do a podcast. Yeah, no problem. It's been way too long since I've been to Toronto anyway. I think yeah. it's been like four years, so I'm way overdue to get, to, get up, to get up here. So I think the last time I reached out to you for this was like a year and a half ago about the indie, like the, yep, the, yep. the Molson Canadian indie, I think. You were thinking of coming up here. Yeah, I was trying to. It's all my schedule is always so wacky, so it's always tough, but this this week worked out all right, so. It worked out for for me too, actually. And I keep missing you whenever you could play in LA too. It's like all your, all, I'm always out of town when you're there too, which yeah. is a bummer. Yeah, it's 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 sucks. And then I think even one time in Europe, I don't know, I tweeted you and I said, "Are you going to be here?" It was for like, I think there was like two metal blade bands playing yeah, or yeah. you tweeted about it and I'm like, "Are you going to be here cuz I got my mics, man." <laughs> <laughs> um, so this time uh, despite what happened earlier today, uh, I am prepared. Not good. More prepared than I would have been if we had done it earlier. All right, good. Well, I'm not prepared on Norsky. Yeah. No. Um, so uh, it, it, it's 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 a huge thing to have you on the podcest because anybody who knows me knows I'm like I'm a, I'm a I mean I'm a rock guy I'm a metal guy and your like, your name is almost synonymous with metal now I mean Metal Blade is is Metal Blade I mean it we're goes old. without yes, saying we're old very old it, it, it goes without <laughs> saying I mean a lot of a lot of the stuff on you and a lot of the interviews I might be wrong. But they talk about the first Metal Massacre and obviously the people on it. Yep. They always go to one band and they don't go to the other band. And I love both bands. How did you get Rat 
on the first Metal Massacre. What's all that about? <laughs> it's actually funny. I've been talking to Stephen Piercy a lot lately, which is kind of cool. Uh, well, you know, this was L.A. in 1982 or 81. Right. Uh, and I started, you know, the whole story is working at a record store and all this stuff. And when I started yeah. working at the record store, I was really the main thing, reason why I wanted to be there was I was a huge fan of the new wave of British heavy metal right. and what was going on in Europe. And I wanted to bring that stuff to L.A., number one, so I could get copies of it easily. Right. And number two, I could get it to my friends. So I would, had been working at the record store for uh, a couple of months and, you know, kind of people were starting to drive up and knew the store had metal. And one of these guys came in one day. It turned out to be the guitar player from the band Bitch, who was also on the Metal Maskers. Right. And he said, you know, there's some good heavy metal bands here in L.A. I said, there are? Where? He said, come to the Troubadour on Wednesday. So I went to the Troubadour on Wednesday, and for $1, I saw Motley Crue and Rat together for a buck. And I was like, wow. He's, and this was early on, too, so Rat was super heavy. Rat was like Judas Priest. They all wore black leather. They had Jiggy Lee was the lead guitar player. They had another guy named Bob who was the other guitar player. He was a big guy in black leather with a, a gigantic flying V. And they were super heavy. They weren't Mickey Rat. No, this was after Mickey Rat. Okay. Uh, they had just they had just become Rat. And both Rat and Motley at that time were pretty heavy. Like Motley was doing yeah. some like heavy stuff. Too Fast for Love is really heavy to well, me. Too Fast for Love was really light compared to what they were doing before. When oh, I heard really? Too Fast for Love, I was like, wow. That's really the really light compared to what they were. These bands were European style metal, you know, priests, scorpions, you know, all that great seventies like pretty heavy stuff. A little right. Sabbath mixed in there. Um, so anyway, so I started seeing Rat, and I started to get into the whole LA metal scene. I started promoting shows, and I had a I had Rat on a bunch of shows. It was kind of funny. One one of the times that they they actually used to open for Bitch, believe it or not. And Robin Cros, the late Robin Crosby, came mm -hmm. up after a show one time. and said, "We just can't seem to get an audience. What do we do?" I said, "Ah, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it." <laughs> So I had known them forever, and then it was just kind of natural. Really, the whole album was just me going to all my friends and the bands I knew in L.A. and saying, hey, I'm putting this compilation. Right. Do you want to be on it? Well, it's interesting because when I see that lineup, and, and Black and Blue as well, it's easy for, for people today into the metal scene uh, to really let that go because, I mean, the camps have kind of mixed and, and crossed over. But back then maybe even before these lines were drawn is when that compilation came out. I'm trying to Way I'm before to the lines, were, there were no lines drawn then. It was just, there was a small scene there with maybe 10 bands at most. It was really all the bands on, on that. Malice, Steeler, Bitch. Uh, really, Stereo Dungle was kind of the, the outcast band from, right. from that time period. They were up in Ventura doing something really weird at the time, kind of from everybody else. But all the other bands, I mean, everybody played together. They all got along. You know, we all because out. like you know, I hear stories about Paul Bailoff and how how you know he was he divided the line so much when it came when it came to bands like Rat and Motley sure. Crue and Slayer and Metallica. Well, what happened I think in L.A. was like you said, you know, you thought Two Pastorella was heavy. That was really pretty light, and they also went also the way they looked changed. Like they started with the with the bigger hair because before it was just all they looks they look like Judas Priest, right? Long hair, no hairspray, no nothing. Then Motley kind of got a little bit into the glam thing, and then Rat followed them, and all of a sudden you had all these other bands that were coming around that were doing the same thing, and that's really where the lines started to get drawn. It really was drawn even before Slayer with Armored Saint. The Armored Saint was a different 
band. They didn't hang out with the Hollywood bands. They were from Pasadena. They're much heavier and looked much heavier. So that was kind of the first band in, in that direction. And then there were clear lines because you had Slayer, Armored Saint, you know, Omen, Savage Grace, all these sort of heavy European style bands. And then you had Rat and Motley and Hans Naughty, a bunch of other crazy bands that were kind of going in the more glam direction. So there, there was a clear line there. But in 82, when that Metal Massacre record came out, there weren't any lines. Right. That's, that's, it's really cool. And, and I think it's come around since then. I see people wearing, having Slayer patches with like, you know, not poison patches, but like Motley Crue. The people can't really tell the, the lines too much anymore. Well, I'm old. So to me, you know, I was not in the poison striper camp at all. But a lot of my friends who were, you know, 37 and younger, like to striper, to like striper is perfectly fine. <laughs> not a problem. Along with all the other heavy stuff, and to a little degree, you know, Poison is there too. They don't have the delineage that that we kind of had back then. Your new foray, Metal Blade, has always kind of, you know, when you hear the name, it's it's kind of like Metallica. I no matter how far out they they've taken their sound, <laughs> I've 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 always said like you, they will never get away. From the fact that metal is in the name of the band, I don't give a shit if you bring a symphony in. It's still, it's still gonna zap. You still are tied to metal. So the same with Metal Blade. And, and over the years, you guys have have signed like, like there's been like Goo Goo Dolls on there. Gypsy Hawk is a band that comes to mind. That's that's doesn't really strike me as an Amon Amarth kind of band. Um, you know, it's it's more it's more rock. Sure. It's got the more rock feel. Um, but now the new foray is is comedy, <laughs> and and so uh, I, I'm very interested in how you came about uh, meeting and signing Don Jameson first. Well, first of all, I have to say I'm a huge fan of comedy. I have been stand up for a long time. I was really super lucky in the '80s to be around in Hollywood at that time because Sam Kennison had just started out. In fact, my good friend Lizzie Borden told me, you got to come see this comedian. So we went to the comedy store, and he went on at 1, he was the last guy on at one thirty in the morning. There were eight people in, in there. And he destroyed, like I've never, still to this day, never seen anybody destroy him. I walked out, my cheeks hurt, my stomach hurt, I couldn't breathe, it was so funny. So I was, and we saw Richard Pryor and George Carl, all these people there. So I've always kind of fascinated by comedy and and always thought, "Hmm, you know, maybe someday. In fact, at the time, uh, the girl I was going out with actually was good friends with the girl that Sam was going out with, Sam Kennison at the time. So I kind of got up my, we kind of talked a few times and, you know, became semi-friendly. So at one point I said, yeah, you know, I have this record company, you know, know, maybe we could do a comedy record. He said, well, I'm doing this uh, HBO special first. Let me see what happens with that. And and if nothing happens, then let's talk. And of course, the rest is is history. (laughs) Holy shit. (coughs) So I've always been a big fan of it. And um, I ran into Don at a Charred Walls of the Damned, which which is another comedian. (laughs) Right. And also drummer Richard Christie from the Howard Stern Show, Side Project. Uh, we, when we put out his first record, we had a, a party in New York City, and Don was there. And Don came and said, oh, I've been wanting to meet you for a long time, and you know, I'm a comedian, and yada, yada. And I, you know, I'd heard of his name before, so we, we got, became friends there. And he kind of came up with the idea, said, why don't, you do, why don't you do a record with me? And I was like, hmm, that's an interesting, an interesting equation. So we like to, what, what we do these days is almost more 
branding really than anything else. I mean, even though we're a record company, I think the main thing for us is my attitude is if we build whatever the, the band is, the brand of that right. band up, then you're naturally going to sell CDs. Yeah. So we kind of took Don, we, we decided to sign Don. He had no Twitter, no Instagram. His Facebook was barely in existence. His website was a mess. And we recreated all of that stuff for him and kind of set it up and then did the comedy scene. It was a blast. So much fun to do. So obviously his good friend is Jim Florentine. And then that, you know, kind of graduated over to there. But uh, but Dom was our first ever comedy signing. So now we're doing quite a bit of it, scarily enough. Well, I know each of them have two albums out on Metal Blade now. Yep. Is there a third comedian on board? Jim Brewer. Oh, Brewer. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, we, wow. we signed well, him. Well, that makes total sense. It's, it's going to be not, not going to be a stand-up record. He's actually going to do a music record, which is pretty pretty cool i've heard some of the stuff he's doing it with rob caggiano from volbeat and anthrax who's going to produce it and it's um, you know it's going to be obviously serious music but the lyrical content will be very tongue-in-cheek and funny he's getting some special guests on there so that's gonna be a lot of fun well it's funny because uh i i uh, i played valken i spoke at valken two years ago and i was on the same day as brewer so we did a podcast together i knocked on his dressing room door and we did it and I told him, and you could hear it on the podcast, and it was totally genuine. I said, you, you sang with Halford, and nobody, like, you, I don't care if you're a comedian, like, you can't get, most guys in bands can't even fucking keep up with Halford. You, you're going line for line, toe to toe, verse for verse with him. Why aren't you, like, taking this more seriously than you are? You should really fucking go for it. I can't remember the song. You can, you can hear it on the uh, Halford thing. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. I, rem- I remember him doing it. There's another one he, he just did that was pretty funny. It's a Christmas song he put out on his own. It's pretty similar to what he's doing here. It's like a real super heavy riff with a Santa Claus. But it's interesting that you know we're kind of you know moving in that direction. But honestly, it's a very difficult world comedy. It's it's uh, a lot of people don't buy comedy stuff. It's very um, digital friendly mainly driven by iTunes and that stuff so so we'll see if, my attitude is like if we do well with Brewer's thing and then you know maybe we'll do a little bit more comedy so we'll see well when I heard that you were putting it out um, I immediately knew that you were a comedy fan okay. without even having read or heard anything about it I just knew well well then that means that Slagle's a comedy fan because nobody would do it in 2010 or whenever the first yeah, yeah. Jameson record came out um, so and knowing those guys and, and knowing how um, they're not they're, – it's kind of like a band. They're kind of like bands where rock bands like cite like, all their influences and stuff. And you hang out with Florentine enough and Jameson. It's all about, you know, Dice and, and Kinnison. They talk about these guys like people talk about Kiss and Black Sabbath. Well, that's the cool thing about both Don and Jim. You know, not only, you know, did we do did – we've done a lot of work with them. They become really good friends of mine too. I was at Jim's wedding and – you know, Dawn was at my wedding, and so it's really cool. But they're—I mean—they're massive metalheads. I mean, they're no joke. Like you talk to them, and they know everything about everybody. And it was always fun. We have—you know—I mean, you see it on that metal show. I mean, obviously, yeah, we have the same talks that they have there all, all the time. So it's fun. Yeah, that's the greatest thing about that show is everybody tunes in because it's very reminiscent of their own conversations. Exactly, and that's really what how that show started in the first place was. Eddie would have those guys on his radio show, and they do have the same talk, and they like, we should really do something more with it. So, it was and they have. funny how I first met Florentine. It was in Philadelphia. I was sitting there, we, you know, we do these van tours, and I made this van 
tape or this van CD of all these crank calls. And we just drive and we listen to these crank calls. And one of them was this guy with this crazy voice, just a, the most obnoxious voice. And so we're sitting there in the Philadelphia station, uh, WYSP. And then in walks this guy and he goes, hey, I'm a big fan. Jason McMaster told me about you guys. And I'm just listening. To, and I'm like, fuck, I've, I, I think I said I've heard like I've heard your like I know who you are. Like, do you do those phone calls and stuff? And that's how we we met and clicked. And that was like almost 10 years ago. It was Florentine. Uh, crazy. Yeah, it's hard to have a serious conversation with him because you always think that voice is just hysterical. Yeah. It, it, I, I, and it's for real. It's not. Oh, yeah. even, it's that's just how voice. he talks. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's great. And those phone calls are just fucking hilarious. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. And I've used it. Actually, I've like lifted their and used it on people who call my place. So. Nice, <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. Awesome. I know they did like four terrorizing telemarketers. Yep. Is there any kind of thought of re-releasing them in, in any way? Uh, they're all out. Actually, they're all they're all out. Um, Steve Vai's label actually put out. I want to say three or three or four of them. Oh, okay. And then another label uh, also put out all that stuff. So they're they're all they're still out and they're still available and doing well and stuff. So oh, yeah, okay, yeah. There. Um, if it was available, I'd love to do it, but yeah, other people have it, so. I asked a few people, uh, Jim and Don, uh, if, if, if there's any questions I, I, I could ask. Oh, no, that I'm scared now. Now no, I'm scared. No, <laughs> no, it was, it was real easy. Um, but Don's at, tell him, ask him about his um, hockey jersey. No, <laughs> collection exactly. which apparently is out of out of control yeah i have uh 2500 hockey jerseys all different teams i have a, basically a jersey from almost any team that ever existed up until probably the last five years minor league international everything and then of those i have about 750 game worn jerseys and game worn jerseys mean they're worn in, in, in actual hockey. Oh, games. okay. So, and most of those, probably about eighty percent, maybe yeah, probably eighty percent of those are minor league stuff. I got really big into minor league hockey in the in the nineties, and then I also got big into eBay. And eBay used to you could buy this stuff for basically nothing. These teams would just get rid of their jerseys. They'd just be like, hey, here's a whole bunch of jerseys for nothing. So I got you know, eBay holic and uh, bought yeah. all these jerseys. So I have this massive jersey collection now. It's so and ridiculous. Then, and then he also asked me. <coughs> told me to ask you about your Iron Maiden bootleg collection. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm a collector, as you could probably tell by all of these things. Yeah, I have, I basically have from the, the existence of Iron Maiden in 1981 through the Seventh Son of Seventh Son tour in 1988, about 90% of every single, about 90% of all the shows they ever did in that time period. So if you said, I went to Iron Maiden in Toronto in 1986, I'm sure I have it. <laughs> How do you, like, this is, this is the thing that I, I always ask people like you. Um, how the fuck do you find it? Like, I want to do it too. Like, I've got, I, my whole thing is I collect Metallica DVD bootlegs. That's my thing. I gave up because I couldn't keep up. Yeah, After so many 200, I was just like, well, this is ridiculous. Either yeah. I go for it and forget fuck everything else or just like be happy with what I have. Well, I, I started out actually before I even got to work at the record store, did the fans or anything. I was a, I was a bootlegger <laughs> when I was a kid. When I was 17, I would go to concerts and stick a tape recorder down my pants and record every single show I could record. So I started really early. So I, I, I have a lot of stuff from that time period. And I got pretty, it got pretty big. At one point, I had probably the fifth largest 
collection in the U.S. But it was it's a little tricky back then because it's super illegal, especially then. People were freaking out about it. So I got out of it. Uh, I got out of it. A couple of the guys who had bigger collection than I did and sold a lot uh, ended up getting busted and going to prison. So so I got out, oh, I never luckily. Yeah, scary. The, the, they would take it that far. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> these guys were, I mean, I would sell a little bit here and there, mainly to fund my habit of buying records because I was poor when I grew up. But these guys were big time. I mean, they were selling tons and tons of stuff. So they were probably making a lot of money, right. too, oh, okay. which was not cool. But um, So anyway, I started early. And then just over the years, I've been able to, between you know, just knowing people. And like, for example, I used to go to Japan all the time. And th th that's the haven yeah. for all this stuff now. Shinjuku. And yeah, exactly. So I'd meet people there. And, I'd, and I'm a huge Iron Maiden collector. So I collect probably of anything I have. Iron Maiden is, I mean, they're still my favorite band of all time. And I, I still, I don't collect nearly as much as I used to, but I, for a while there, I was a crazy collector. So I have, you know, almost everything that ever existed in Iron Maiden world, including these. And I ran it, just ran it. Some, it wasn't even just me. Some guy uh, had somehow amassed these, all of these tapes. I probably had maybe 40% of all the Maiden shows. And I found this guy, I can't even remember where, how it came about, but he had these, he put them on DVDs and they were basically all, you know, almost every Maiden show. So I gave him a bunch of the stuff that I had to complete his thing and then he gave me all the stuff he had. So it's crazy. So your collection is, is audio, obviously. Yep. But I mean, now that it's 2014, are there still cassettes and I kept all my cassettes I have them but I, I've transferred all of my live stuff onto computer so all the live CDs and all the live cassettes I have everything all on computers now so I have like three a couple of different laptops that have everything in it because I probably have I don't know several thousand live shows from all over the place so it's actually funny I was talking with Randy Johnson the pitcher Right, yeah. you're not a sports fan, so no. But you may not know, but hopefully, some people on the podcast know. He's a Hall of Fame pitcher. Uh, we were talking, and, he, and uh, he's a photographer now. He's doing all this rock photography, so it's really good, actually. Uh, and he was, I was going to see him on a Marth. I was supposed to go see him on a Marth in Phoenix. He said, "Oh, if you come, come to my house. I have the biggest bootleg collection in the world." I go, oh, "We may have to talk about that." So he has a pretty impressive collection, though. But of Maiden. Uh, he doesn't have as much Maiden. He's got some Maiden, but he's got like Sabbath and Zeppelin and a bunch of other stuff. So, I got caught up in the whole Metallica DVD bootleg thing a few years ago. It's hard, man, because even like Metallica, I mean, it's just impossible for. I mean, I I try to keep up with some of that stuff, but it would be it's there's just too many of it, too much of it. And and what I what I found <coughs> after after trying to chase that is like I wasn't even watching it. I was just like yeah, marking just off the it, dates. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then I, you know, oh, I'll just watch this, throw it on. I might as well. And I'm like, oh, this is pretty unwatchable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I guess at least with an audio tape, you could at least do something else. But you're locked onto the screen watching this kind of shaky cam. It's a little tough. I, I have a ton of bootleg uh, DVDs and stuff as well. So, But I realized the other day that, that that's changed so much. I got an Iron Maiden Blu-ray bootleg DVD from their show wow. in um, one of the shows in, in, I think it was Brazil, it was broadcast on TV. And I mean, it's like perfect quality. Yeah. Like, how can you watch anything else almost after that? Uh, that's pretty cool. I have, I have a couple of those in my Metallica collection, but I... Well, don't if you're a, if if you're a big Metallica fan, if you'll probably your head will explode if you ever go to Lars's house. Oh, because he has he has a a I don't know if it's like almost like a it's a warehouse basically housing pretty much every show they've ever done on either audio or video. 
I've heard crazy. that he he collects the set list. Yeah, he's all. Yeah, he's got he's got all that stuff. But I went in. Uh, I remember going in there. It's like it's pretty impressive. It's like wow. <laughs> but there's this one. There's this one sh- clip I saw, and uh, it became the one bootleg Metallica bootleg that uh, I was trying to find because I saw this. I saw Metallica on this French talk show, and they cut to this to this footage of you know, I think it was Breaking Edge Festival from '84, and it's Cliff Burton. And it's really bright, bright. It's it's really crisp. The the footage is in perfect condition. And then they cut back to Lars, and Lars is like, "I want that." Or, Where <laughs> yeah, is really? it? So he doesn't have it, or wow. at least he didn't. And, <coughs> and, Excuse uh, me, I'm sure he has it now. Yeah, probably. That became immediately became the thing that I was. I never found it, but oh, really? France, eighty four, and uh, it's just. Fucking phenomenal! Amazing. Yeah, I have to, I have um, to look around. The footage is bit. really crisp and clear, and I'm surprised it's not on the. I'll make it. I'll make a note of it because I've got a bunch of stuff, and I know, you know, like I said, I know a bunch of people in that world, so I'll have to see if it's out there. Yeah, and that, and that, you know, and I, I tried to find it, and I saw other collectors online it makes it easier now to like yep find people, and they were looking for it too. Well, so I'm like, well, there's just no way I can find this thing. It's probably locked up in Lars's. You know, house now. I'll, te- so. I'll text him now if you want. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuff scares the shit out of me. Um, actually, when we played uh, Soundwave, uh, I I was with Ian from Billy Talent, the guitar player from Billy Talent, and Metallica threw a barbecue the first day of the tour, which I thought was really nice. Oh yeah, they're great and guys. they showed all four of them showed up. You know, some stuck around for sh- shorter than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but James was the fucking man. He went to every little kind of, and it's all the bands were invited. Yeah, yeah. So you get a bunch of fucking, you know, fucking. Everybody's going ape shit over James Hetfield, and including <laughs> myself. So I was positioning myself wherever I thought James would end up. The next, the next group of people, I thought he'd end up, and he'd always go the other way. And he wasn't doing it on purpose. It was just the way things happened. And then finally, we were me and Ian from Billytown, we were the last people to go up to him. And then he was, by the time we finally got him, he was done. I mean, yeah. he, he, had, he was such a trooper. The other guys are long gone. No, oh, wow. Um, and all he kept doing was whatever, I, whatever we'd say, I was like, yeah, we're from Toronto. Toronto, great place. Like he was done. He just yeah. it repeated what we said and gave it a, a, a little compliment. Um, <laughs> but Lars was the one guy I just did not want to go up. To. Not because I don't like. I'm just so intimidated by Lars. Really? I, I, it's funny because you know I, I mean obviously I've known those guys forever and like I mean Lars is still one of my best friends. Mm. And you get that all the time. It used to be really James because people, especially like in the '90s, yeah. when I'd go to shows and kids would be backstage getting autographs. I go, you guys get everybody, you get everybody's autograph. They go, we get everybody but James. And why didn't you get James? I was afraid of him. Like, he's like, come on, pussy cat. We'll go. Come on, get it done. So Lars is the same way. No, you know, like some kind of monster. That scene when he uh, he goes to the ballet recital. <laughs> that was it for me. I'm like, nah, James is. I can <laughs> I can get his autograph, <laughs> but but Lars for some reason and then because um, you know over the years I've kind of like I've always felt and I've always thought that back in the Metallica camp and I know those guys are have their ears to the ground I have not held back on my fandom for Metallica good or bad if I have a criticism about them I'll say it publicly and openly and I feel as a fan I have 
kind of that right to exercise it because yeah, my course. my loyalty is unflinching. Um, so <laughs> I've said a few things that Blabbermouth have fucking picked up on, and it, it, so I've just like over, I've just like stayed away, and I'm like, ah, I just prefer to be a fan. Having said that, Kirk actually emailed me once. It was like we were on tour, and I got this crazy email address that looked like spam, and something inside me said, "Click it." Like I never do that, and it was just, it was Kirk, and it, it, he was drunk, and he goes, "I'm hanging out with Mark Asagueda from Death Angel. We're listening to you guys. You fucking blah." He was obviously drunk, awesome. and I was like, "Holy fuck!" And and uh, one of our guys was in the in the in the shower taking a shower. I'm like, Fucking John, open up! He thought I was getting killed. And he's, what the fuck? What's going on? I go. I think Kirk Hammett just fucking emailed me. And then I go. I don't know though. This could be a fucking joke. So I, I emailed Mark and I said, Mark, there's a guy posing as Kirk Hammett <laughs> saying that he's hanging out with you. He goes, No, it fucking happened. Yeah, and awesome. it was really cool. And then we met at uh, Rock'em Ring, and he 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 came in. Uh, we we went to their their world camp yeah yeah and um and i we were led led in by a guy you look at him and i'm like you could tear me apart with your bare hands one of those kinds of guys and then he came in and it was an hour to show time and they were obviously jamming he had his guitar and he started playing our riffs awesome. to me <laughs> and he's like how do you play this and i was it was the one moment in my life where i just i i fucking had vertigo like i couldn't even I couldn't answer him. So JC, our bass player, had to answer him for me. I didn't even know what it was. And then afterwards, I'm like, what was the riff that he played? And he told me the song. And They're I'm, just human beings like the rest of I us. know, but I'm just like, there's, they, you know, I, I fuck it. They're just my favorite band. Them and Kiss are my yeah. favorite bands. In the no, world. I get you. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, Kiss is a huge, I mean, Kiss was my favorite band in the, in the 70s when I was a kid. But Iron Maiden to this day is my favorite band. And I'm still... Like, I met Steve Harris, like, twice. I interviewed him once in 81 for my fanzine, and uh, I met him once briefly in this in, in Nashville on this last run. And, I, and, you know, I tell, like, the Anthrax guys and all that stuff, you know, because they all know I'm a like, You've never met Steve? I said, well, I mean, kind of, but I just, same thing. You're just, I would be a little kind of stumbly yeah, the there. I mean, he's probably yeah. the, only, the only guy. I think him and Tony Iommi, the only two guys that would ever intimidate me because I'm so used to dealing with bands. Just that right. All, you know, it's... If I'm at Bonnell tomorrow, I'll be like, yeah, cool. Yeah, you know, man, yeah. you know, whatever. But those two guys, especially Harris. But I know I know Bruce really well. Oh, that's cool. And I'm really good friends, uh, believe it or not, with, with Rod Smallwood, which still kind of blows oh, wow. me away. He's like an unbelievably great guy. And always, every time I go to a show, he gives us passes and the whole thing and hang out with him and go to dinner with him and hung out like afterwards. Great guy. But it still kind of blows me. It's like, wow, I'm friends with Rod Smallwood. That's that's so that's bizarre. Pretty heavy. Yeah, <laughs> that's like next level maiden fan. Like <laughs> yeah, next exactly. Level. Yeah, that's pretty cool. He knows I'm a fan, but I still don't think he knows to what degree I'm a fan. So. Right. But but the thing that the thing that people don't understand about Metallica is they know, but they know all the stuff. They know Load was 
was a, a big departure. They know Reload is not a good record. They know St. Anger is not a good record. And they especially know Lulu isn't a good record. When they did the 30th anniversary shows, they even were joking about, like, you know, that sort of stuff on stage. Yeah. About uh, Even the night Lou Reed was there, they were joking about about that stuff. So so they, oh, okay. they understand all of it. It's just, you know, I, I think for them, you know, they like, they like to do things differently and take risks and just, you know. I, I mean, the thing with with them <clears throat> I always make the argument like they're not, they're never whatever album they're making is based on whatever they're listening to at the time so load and reload sound like that because they were obsessed with 70s rock and metal thin lizzy bluister cult bachman turner overdrives that's all they were listening to so that's kind of how those records sounded when they did saint anger they were obsessed with system of a down yeah. And they, that's and then when they did Death Magnetic, they they came back to the new wave of British heavy metal. In fact, Lars called me and said like we're starting to think about writing another record. We you know I I've lost all my copies of the new wave of British heavy metal album that he actually did that we put out in the states with a compilation of all the best of stuff. He said, can you send me a few of those so I can give them to the guys and we can you know kind of re rediscover that stuff. So sure. So they got back into all of that stuff, and hence you have a record like Death Magnetic, which sounds like the early stuff. Yeah, I've, I've, honestly, like I love Death Magnetic. And phenomenal. A lot of people were going like every time I I talk up Death Magnetic, people were like, the one guy goes, "Well, it's it's not Ride the Lightning, right?" And I'm like, dude, you've had over 20 years to live with Ride the Lightning. You have experience, life experiences with those songs. How is it ever gonna match? Just listen to it as a record. Of course. That you would as a, like, you know. Well, not only that, I mean, here's a band. I mean, look, they're arguably in the one of the three biggest bands in the world right yeah, now. Yeah, of course, yeah. Whenever has a band at, at that status ever gone back and done something really credible that's like their early stuff? I mean, and doing something super heavy like that. I mean, never. I mean, nobody's been able to do that. So, you know, people discount that record a little bit, but it's like, yeah, but you got to take it in the context of... You know where they're at in their career and how big, how huge they are. I mean, it's a, you know, it's not easy for them to even have a, the record companies say like, yeah, yeah, you know, do a do a record with a whole bunch of really long, super heavy songs. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I totally agree with you on that. Um, but my thing with Lulu was, and it was a total joke because I sometimes I feel like you know I bust balls on bands like Metallica and Kiss. I do it publicly, but but I, it's only meant in fun because I I said listen I like I, I tweeted I go listening to uh, Lulu right now, and then and then I go um, uh, why yeah <laughs> like this is before the album came out oh, okay. and then I go listen and then the next day I go listen to Lulu last night uh, Metallica collection up for sale this morning like <laughs> and and f- and then I took a picture I, I spread out all my like records and I took a photo and I tweeted the photo and Blabbermouth picked up on it and for two days it was non-stop this is before people had heard Lulu non-stop hatred from all these fucking Metallica fans tweeting me going who the fuck are you fuck you I'm like oh my god I think it was you know, I just created a monster. Yeah, exactly. Well, some people don't have a sense of humor. I yeah, guess. It, was just, it was a joke for a guy to have that many Metallica records. I must be a fan too. Yeah, yeah. you know, but you know, it's they're humorless. F- their fans are funny because it's it's one way or the other. It's either way. I hate them now because they don't they don't do the old stuff, or they love them and everything can't do any wrong. So, Kiss fans, so I'm going to ask you a question. Sure. Yeah. So, what is your opinion of the current Kiss lineup? Um, I I I am all for it. 
Um, but I, I would prefer that the new members take on new makeup. That's yeah. that's what I, I I really think that doing Tommy Thayer's Spaceman and Eric's uh, singer as the Catman, it should like just that in the same tradition as the Fox and the Ank Warrior, they should be new characters. I completely agree. Yeah, I uh, it's funny because because. When I was 14, Kiss was, that was my favorite band. I made homemade Kiss shirts and wore them to school. So I'm actually reading, I'm going through all the autobiographies now. I so Yeah, I read, uh, well, I read Jeans a long time ago. Yeah. So I, I have to go back and reread it again. But I did, yeah, I did Peter's and I just finished Ace. And I'm just starting with Paul's and I go back and read Jeans. So it's interesting to get the different takes of, from from those guys. Because I've I've met Gene quite a few times, actually. And I think I met Paul once and Ace once for like two seconds. And I actually interviewed Peter Chris. I've, I've done a radio show since 1990, still doing it. But I used to do it in Phoenix on the local uh, K-Rock, uh, K Z-Rock show. So I interviewed him once for two hours. Like, could not be a nicer guy. So it's interesting to get their different takes on, you know, the career and what happened and stuff. Well, it's interesting <clears throat> you'd say that about Peter Chris because Peter Chris's autobiography, out of the three that I've read, I'm reading Paul's next week on the plane. Um, on tour, but Peters, I found he came off as the most unsympathetic at the end of the read. Kind of, yeah. I, I was, I was kind of surprised that he that threw too. himself under the bus. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I think he. he I, I mean, I went back and forth with that on, on his book because I, sometimes I go, ah, what an asshole, and then other times I go, ah, you know, I kind of understand what he was doing. But I mean, meeting him a few times, he couldn't be a sweeter guy. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting to see where he came from and i was really surprised by ace's book because you know, i've met ace a couple times and he's never been fully coherent really uh but he, i thought his book was awesome and really well done it and was, like yeah. the guy's like okay, he's a really i mean you know ed trunk's a good friend of mine and obviously he's good friends with ace and you know, i've only heard great things from him about ace and how smart he is and i didn't really realize it until like wow that guy is pretty freaking smart but it's a good book the thing is I, i've i've said this because <coughs> marty friedman is a huge kiss fan too mm -hmm. and we've done a kiss only podcast yeah, before and we're we did one already and that's the next episode oh cool so we talk about this and both of us are on the same side with all this kiss stuff and we agree on most things uh about kiss and the one book I think will be the most coherent and the most truthful will be Paul's. Yeah, I heard it's real. I, I just really started, so I'm only like a couple pages in. But uh, I do know from a couple friends of mine who read it said it's really, really good. So Because so he's the one, he strikes me as like, he's not as like ego-driven as Gene and full of himself. And yet, I don't know, though. You hear <laughs> reports, though. I mean, even if you read Ace and Peter's book, I mean, Paul, I mean, Gene probably comes off the worst a yeah. little bit. But Paul, you know, he's he's not the the the, the you know everything's all good either. And I, I mean, I heard that he was the one that really laid the hammer down about the original band not playing at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like Gene was actually all for it, and Paul said, "I will not play with those guys ever again." That's what I heard. I be, I could be wrong, but I was fairly credible sources. I'm a Paul fan when it comes to these things, and I agree with Paul. I'm um, I'm 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 Team Paul. So you would not want to see the original guys at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, I would, but I mean, I understand I, uh, knowing knowing the whole story and and just how they were treated and um, treated. I mean, fuck, these are fucking multimillionaires. But yeah, I know exactly. I, I mean, it's just ridiculous. But but I mean, just the way that the whole thing went down. I mean, if I was in Paul's position, I'd I'd take a stand too. Yeah, know? I mean, look, I can't I can't blame those guys. I mean, you, you know, if you re if you read both Peter and Ace, I mean, they were 
fucked up most of the time. And I can yeah. imagine being, I mean, I just know from my dealing with bands, I don't want to deal with bands that are fucked up. Like if, if they're, if they're not responsible, if they're not going to do stuff, they're hooked on drugs and all that. I mean, it's just not worth the hassle no matter how big they are. So I get it from that level, but it's tough, you know, from the fan base because I mean, that's, that's the band, you know, it's, that's but here's the, the thing band. is Eric Singer has been in the band for 23 years. Eric's and Eric's great. I mean, I, I don't really have a big a problem with Eric cause I think he's a good, he's a really good drummer. I mean, it's still weird seeing him wearing the makeup, but the whole Tommy Thayer is ace. I mean, he plays fine. And he's a great guitar player, but he—it's the there's just a whole tone thing there that's so different. Yeah. Like most people, I can't go see it now. I watched them. <clears throat> I went to see them when they first did that. Them and Aerosmith played in Vegas. Right. I went to see that. I was just so bummed out by you know it just wasn't the same. And I when they did the reunion tours, I think I saw 32 of those shows. Holy fuck! I'm a huge Kiss fan. I mean, I went to I was at all four of the. Um, um, Long Beach Arena shows the way they did a live too. I mean, I, you know, I saw them countless times. I was at the Phantom of the Park when they did that disaster. What you were? I was there. Yeah, I won tickets to go. They had a concert there, so I won tickets to go. So see technically, it. you're in the movie. I yeah, theoretically, yeah. There was a you're, you're, dot somewhere. The shape of your head is. Yeah, but that was the end of uh, me being a Kiss fan because they started explaining how the movie was going to go, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> and that day. When I was there, they were playing over the loudspeaker this amazing album, and I was trying to. I was like, I, nobody knew what it was. I even went up to the guy that was at the soundboard and said, "Do you know what who this is?" I, go, oh, I have no idea. And they played it over and over. And I went, Man, this is so good! So I started to kind of try to remember some of the, the choruses, so I might think of the song titles. And I went, and maybe a week later, I was in the local record store flipping around, and I said, "Oh, I think I found the record. It's ACDC Powerage." Wow! And that's when I went from being a Kiss fan, as Kiss my favorite band, to being ACDC my favorite band. Right. Next. <laughs> the other person. Who I, I sent out uh, any questions if you had he 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 mailed me back with like twenty questions but it's Phil from Sacred Reich oh cool and uh, <laughs> Phil rules aside from like the joke questions yeah there's like half of them are joke questions I'm tr- I'm just trying to like field them all like you know who is your best friend like these kinds of things <laughs> um, <laughs> who do you like more James or Lars. Um, you know, who wins the Canadian Power Trio deathmatch between Rush, Triumph, and Anvil? Rush. Yeah. Um, That's an easy one. And who is your favorite uh, new wave of British heavy metal band? Iron Maiden. Of course, yes. Um, but anyways... James it, or Lars. I'm more close to Lars, because I mean, I've known him much longer, but I'm good friends with both of those guys. Yes, so I'm probably... I, I you know, but I'm much closer to Lars than James. Always has been that way. Um, there's just... There's just so 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 many questions. Like ser- <coughs> seriously, let me see. Two. I'll, I'll answer the ones that make sense. Let me see here. All right, Phil, you're crazy. Uh, what people have been pivotal in the rise of metal late for your mom's garage to wear today? There's no one but me. Come on. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, there's a lot of people that have been there for a long time. Mike Faley's been there for 28 years. Tracy Vera's been there for 23 years. Uh, Dan Fitzgerald's been there for 20 years. I mean, we most of the people that we have working at Metal Blade have all been um, there forever. So there's a lot of people. It's, trust me, it's not not just me. Tom or Carrie? That's definitely Carrie. That's really easy. 
Uh, let's see. Favorite memorabilia? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see some of these. <laughs> oh, here we go. One person you would love to meet living deceased. Uh, that is very easy. Phil Linett. It's the one guy I would, I mean, a huge Thin Lizzy fan. So I got to see him once, well, twice, technically, in 1979, so with Phil. Now, have you met his mom? Because she's very public. Met his mom. Unfortunately, only very briefly. Um, but she was unbelievably cool. I wish I had more time to spend with her because she was just so nice. And Because we, we ended up reissuing a bunch of Thin Lizzy records when we were at Warner Brothers in the early 90s. And uh, we did a really good job on it. We remastered everything and made it sound really good. And, and we also got Warners to basically what Warners did, which was really cool, is they wiped out all of Thin Lizzy's debt and they paid the band from record one on that stuff which was cool so she got some money so yeah couldn't couldn't be a nicer person so actually there's here's a follow-up question to that what since you asked me about kiss what are your feelings about um the uh the black star riders and the thin lizzie before that well uh um you know, I saw the the first you know incarnation of that was really it was you know a tribute to Phil, which I thought was great. And yeah. Brian Downey and Scott Gorham and uh, um, you know John Sykes, of, uh, yeah Sykes, and so that was really good, and, and I appreciate that. And I mean, I go back and forth with it because I mean, I guess I'm happy that they're still around doing it, and the whole theory was if we're not doing it, you know, we're trying to keep his legacy going. But it also looked a little bit to me to be a bit of a money play because they were doing so many shows and. It kind of got a little old to me. And then when they were talking about making a new record, for a minute they were going to call it Then Lizzie. And that would have been, to me, blasphemous. Yeah. So I'm very happy they didn't do that. I think that it's a great record. And the band is really good. So I'm glad they're doing it. But I'm glad they didn't call it Then Lizzie. Looking over uh, Phil's uh, questions here, there is, there is one uh, question about Guar. Um, you know, from the recent events uh, surrounding that, that band, um, Guar were probably the, one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that they, you know, they were, I think a lot of people got into Guar and, and they were kind of a novelty in that sense where like if they're around, it's something to do. But I think, and it, I'm in this, I'm guilty of it, is like I didn't realize just how consistent they were in, in putting out all those records. Um, and so now that things have happened, like what are your thoughts about Guar and, and, and all that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. With it, Odorous. And yeah, it just so sucks because, you know, Dave, such a great, just an gr amazing, great, wonderful human being. And, you know, why is the guy gone so quick? It's a, really a bummer. And, you know, he was super funny, but one of the smartest guys I think I've ever met. I mean, he was, he could talk for hours about the World War II, about history, about, I mean, he was like, you know, Harvard level uh, smart. You know, they kind of became, strangely enough, when you look at Guar way back in the day, so they never could become mainstream, but they be, they really became mainstream. I mean, between you know what they're doing with the live shows, what they're doing the music, what Dave was doing all with TV, you know, being on TV and all this stuff, and how creative they were doing, and so many things. I mean, everybody knew who Guar was, and you really saw it. The the one thing that I, that was cool after Dave passed away was just reading all the tweets and this I mean just people coming out of the woodwork that you had no idea were huge Guar fans uh, which was really awesome and and you realize then how how really they've just transcended so many things just by what what they were able to do 
both musically and visually. And I mean, look, the, you know, they always got knocked for, you know, oh, it's just a show and the music's not any good. But they, you know, I think, you know, a lot of those records are really good. And I think people slowly over the years started to realize, like, these guys actually are pretty decent musicians, especially when they have to play in front of, you know, all, all, all that nuts nonsense they have to wear every night. It's <laughs> well, not easy. Well, I, I always thought Odorous was, <laughs> was a great singer. Um, and I knew that there was a bigger personality behind the costume. But... I am guilty of the fact that, you know, when they burst out onto the scene, I went to see them in 1990, and then I, I kind of moved on. I think that's a lot of people. Just, I mean, people saw it and thought it was really cool. I mean, they've had obviously tons of fans, and they continued to do it for a long time. But it seemed like the last five or six years is where they really, they, they certainly perfected what they were doing, I think, finally, and really made it a huge spectacle, and they, were, they knew how to do that. And that got so many people back in. I, I mean, again, they were bigger than they've ever been at this point in time so so it's just that i mean they're definitely going to continue on in some in some manner but it's obviously not ever going to be the same without dave i mean he was the guy that you know kind of the glue that put it all together and just the personality on stage i mean he'd just say stuff on stage just just stare i mean he could have been a stand-up comedian easily yeah i, I could sense that totally I, we, we've always talked about forever about doing a spoken word record with him just letting him go crazy and we never got around doing it, but but he recorded a bunch of stuff over the years. So I was talking with the guys, and we're going to kind of compile it all together. I think we'll be able to make it happen. So well, there's something I put out. Um, it was a, it was a seven inch, and it was based on the um, uh, having fun with Paul Stanley on stage seven inch. And I think they <laughs> did one for Ian Mackay, and that's a bootleg. They're all bootlegs, but I we did our own, and it was just basically the in between song banter from like a bunch of bootleg. <laughs> shows that I had of our band. Oh, that's awesome. And we put a seven inch out and I, I would think you could do a whole, and actually that's a play on an Elvis one, having fun with Elvis on stage. That's a, that's a full album. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, that's, there's some amazing stuff there. That's I'm, a good idea. I'm sure there's enough core footage that you could put together like a double album. Anyways, I, I, I have to ask this last question from Phil. Um, is it true that Sacred Reich playing Poison's Talk Dirty to Me was the clincher on offering them a record deal? <laughs> no, absolutely not. In fact, if in fact if I would have seen or heard them do that, I probably would have not wanted to sign them. <laughs> um, you know, I told Phil this uh, when I met those guys a couple years back at Vakken, actually. Um, and we ended up hanging out for like the whole night, me and Phil, just outside of the hotel. And uh, he's... He's a great guy. Oh, awesome. He's amazing. And um, I told him, I got into Sacred Reich because I saw a Metal Blade ad, I believe in some metal magazine, that said the same label that brought you Metallica and Slayer now bring you the next generation. (laughs) And it was everybody's logo. (laughs) Terrible ad. Sacred Reich, Sacrifice were in there. I mean, I'm from Scarborough, and, you know, the, the, the Sacrifice guys... I count his friends like Joe, Joe and Rob, and um, it's just so cool, you know. Now to meet Phil the way I know him, you know, and I, I mean, I'm go- going to see Sacred Reich and all that stuff. So, so I told him that, and he was actually, I think he was impressed that the oh, yeah, worked. He, you know, he like, totally was. He he's he's a funny guy because you know I keep bugging them like you got. Why don't you just do another record? Oh, I fucking I I stopped asking. I know, yeah. I ask them all the time, too. But I think, you know, they, they're having fun now doing what they're doing. They're enjoying it. And I told them, like, look, but you don't, ha- you don't have to tour. You can tour just like you're doing it now. You can do some festivals. You can do some dates here. There's not a big commitment. Like, if you put out a record, you get a tour for six weeks. You don't have to do that these days. It's a whole different scenario. But I just think he just doesn't want to do it. 
I saw them two, well, it'll be two years ago this summer, Hellfast. I hadn't seen them for, I don't know, for a few years. And they were on fire. I mean, they were just absolutely on fire. And then they played our 30th anniversary show in L.A. And same thing. They, they played, he said, we'll come, but we're only going to play three songs. I go, well, and everybody's freaking out for more. He said, nope, we're going to do three. And again, they just, just absolutely destroyed them. And they're better now. I told them at Hellfest, too, I said, you guys are better now than you were in the heyday, actually. I mean, they're just on fire, sounding amazing. That Hellfest show is online. I think the whole thing is on. Their whole yeah, a lot of those whole Hellfest ones are up there. <clears throat> and they were just, they destroyed the place that day. I was blown away. Like, holy cow. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, uh, when 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 I was there in Germany, and they're just sit, like I saw in the lobby, there's some guy walking around with a Sacred Reich shirt. And I'm like, oh, it's just some guy. And <laughs> but I knew they were playing that day, so I'm like, maybe he's with them. And uh, ch- sure enough, I, I I saw. I think it was Wally walking around yeah. or something. I'm like, why do I know that face? Yeah. Like, why do I know that? Let's go. So, the original, all the original guys are back. It's awesome. Yeah, and it, it's it's. Yeah, they're such an amazing band. I, I, uh, I, it's just, it's too bad, but I understand now that you're telling me the situation. Yeah, I think, I yeah, I think that, I mean, you know, he hasn't told me what it is, but I can, you know, just kind of surmise more or less kind of, you know, yeah. what the story is. Well, Brian, I mean, I think it's very fitting to end on Sacred Rite. Awesome. I don't want to take up too much of your time. No, no worries. Um, but th- thanks, Brian. Thank you for yeah, your time. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah. Yeah.